the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, May 1st, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. NYU scientist Richard Bonneau studies systems biology. Systems biology aims to decipher the complex interactions in biological systems. Bonneau's lab specifically focuses on learning networks from functional genomics data and predicting and modeling protein structure. This week, we're broadcasting a shortened lecture he gave in April as part of Science in the City's Spring Event Series in conjunction with NYU. So get ready for your crash course in systems biology. In May of 1959, British novelist and physicist C.P. Snow delivered his infamous Two Cultures lecture. What he didn't know was that the gap between science and the humanities he so vividly described would still persist 50 years later. That's why on May 9, 2009, Science in the City, the Science Communication Consortium, Science Debate 2008, and Discover Magazine bring you two cultures in the 21st century, a full-day conference bringing together visionaries, scientists, authors, and the media to explore the persistence of the two cultures gap how it can be overcome. Join Pulitzer Prize winner E.O. Wilson, former Congressman John Porter, Segway inventor and entrepreneur Dean Kamen, and many others at this historic event. For more information and tickets, please visit www.nyas.org forward slash two cultures. So what I want to talk about today is something that uh, is called genomics. Sometimes it's called systems biology. Sometimes it's called functional genomics. And instead of, again, like I said, talking about the details of the technologies, since they change every five minutes, I wanted to talk about kind of the setup. Basically, why can we do genomics? What is special about biological systems that lets them be dissected one gene at a time, two genes at a time? Why do, why do microarray experiments tell us anything? And I wanted to first give like a brief history of biology so that the kind of non-biologists appreciate why one of the reasons genomics is exciting is because it's moving so quickly. So if we set that in terms of the 2,000-year-old history of biology, it seems like, uh, like the last decade's been fairly productive. And then after that, since a lot of genomics revolves around what biological networks are. I want to kind of just talk about generally what biological networks are. What are they as data structures? What are they as models? What are they physically? What are they from an informatics point of view? And then once we kind of have that all set up, then I'll go through a really quick example of how we learn the regulatory network for this bug. And so I'll I'll pass this little extremely dangerous organism around uh, when we get to that point. Okay, so for me, I started off in a laboratory with a lot of different people And in that laboratory was a guy named Charlie Strauss, who is basically a chemical physicist who designed instruments and things like that. He actually had a program that was on a a spacecraft that had landed on Mars and had been collecting weather data there uh, for for many years. And so he would always talk about the circuit design in these space probes as being like a real work of art. And the reason it was a work of art is because these electrical circuits were built so that any circuit element, any part of that circuit, could actually be blown away, fail closed, meaning no current can go across, or it could fail open, meaning it was just melted so that the the circuit, the switch, the resistor was always on. So all the circuit elements could fail in both ways that a circuit element could fail, and the thing could happily move along. And then on top of that, they had different modules so that within these modules, you could have a handful of failures in each module and the thing would still work. And so this is the Voyager spacecraft, which is going to deliver this picture disc, which is actually Michael Jackson's thriller on the... No, just kidding. Uh, This is a... (laughs) 
uh, it's going to deliver this to, to aliens many, many years after we're gone, and there's some likelihood that the circuits will still be working because when it left the heliosphere, it was still transmitting faint signals back, which is kind of amazing considering that for 30 years there was no repairman and it was exposed to radiation and micrometeorites and all that sort of stuff. And so this is where that spacecraft came from. And the reason why that spacecraft's uh, home planet looks either green or blue here, well, maybe not the blue, but the, the distinct color of this planet comes from uh, life. And so 30 years without a repairman, actually maybe it's 35. I actually don't know exactly when the Voyager craft was launched. This is uh, a lot longer without a repairman, right? Living systems have been on the planet for, depending on when you believe that life first evolved, uh, and depending on how many common ancestors there were at the very root of the tree of life, for potentially three billion years, a little bit, actually a little, a little bit longer than that. And that number kind of actually, strangely, keeps getting longer and longer as we learn that life existed earlier and earlier. And so whether or not uh, the system uh, is any one of the visible organisms that we interact with and see, or the microorganisms that we rely on. All of these bugs are, are, are all these, well, not bugs. I think of prokaryotes a lot. So when I say bugs, I mean bacteria or archaea. Um, OK. Um, but all of these living organisms at their core have a very complex molecular system. And so this is actually what this little guy is painting here. It's pretty good for two. Um, it's my son, so maybe, you know, maybe he's got No, this is actually. Uh, the textbook that I had for biochemistry in, 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 as an undergrad. And, in the, and I'd never seen a picture like this before. I'd studied biology quite a bit by the time I got to college and was totally hooked on biology you know, at age 15. So I was already convinced. But when I saw this, I was additionally convinced. And what this is, is this is pictures of little blobograms for the proteins, the DNAs, and the RNAs in the cell. And this is now a fairly famous picture. But basically, an artist and a bio, uh, biochemist work together looked at what the concentrations of different things are in the cell and realized, well, actually, it's kind of a gel. And so when I say biological networks, I don't mean circuits. There's no wires and there's no circuit elements. There's no two-dimensionally nicely separated uh, circuits. The circuits are actually built not out of wires and components, but are built out of biomolecules and their affinity for each other. And when I say affinity, I mean specifically that one biomolecule, a protein, may have many millions fold preference for binding some other protein, but then another protein, which is made of the same 20 amino acids arranged in a different sequence, it might have a million fold less affinity for that one. The range of affinities in biological systems are at least six, seven, eight orders of magnitude, and so these different many, many million fold, billion fold affinities for different molecules for each other are the stuff of biological circuits. So for example, if I look at one of these little squiggles here, this is a DNA in this system. So pink is DNA, it's yellow parts the membrane. These are the ribosomes here. Uh, that might be the nuclear pore. Yeah, this is the nuclear pore with some RNA kind of going through the nuclear pore. And this is the cross section of the cell here. And these basically these pictures are kind of in, are, are these little cross sections here. And so if I look at like so any given one of these things here, that, that affinity uh, is the result of very detailed molecular interactions. And so this is the histone particle with DNA wrapped twice around it. And the specific molecular interactions between the atoms in these protein molecules, which are effectively long heteropolymers that are folded up into these little blobs here, are exquisitely structured to interact with DNA just so. And so in the end, what we're trying to learn with genomics is we're trying to learn which proteins, there's tens of thousands of proteins in your genome, interact with which DNAs and which proteins. And when proteins interact with DNA or RNAs interact with DNA, how does that affect the rate at which RNAs are copied 
because the number of copies of something is kind of its level in the cell. And so the two things we're trying to learn are levels, how many copies of all these different things are there, and affinities, because certain things turn on other things. So if we have a lot of something that binds DNA and causes the gene that's in the vicinity of that piece of DNA to be copied a lot, that's called an activator. If binding that DNA shuts off that gene, eventually there won't be many copies of that gene left, and that'll be, uh, its concentration will go down, and that'll be turning the gene off. And so to a certain degree, a circuit that's made out of concentrations and affinities is potentially a little hard to envision, but that's what, that's what we've got, and that's what we're trying to learn. And given the fact that we have 30,000 genes or more in the human genome, if you count RNAs as genes and things like that, and given that each interaction is fairly detailed and, and potentially not so easy to read off the sequence, you might kind of wonder, well, how on earth uh, can we do this? And if you look at the history of biology, you see that actually from the beginning of biology, which started with the Greeks and the Arabs and was, en and was eventually passed down to, the, uh, to, to European society, that it wasn't until the invention of the microscope and things like that that we even knew in 1663 that we even knew that life was composed of cells. It wasn't until 1884, 1869 that we started to actually understand molecules. And so we had no chance of doing this, this genomic stuff until we knew what benzene was and things like that. We see that the history of biology we go from classification to chemistry. We go from chemistry and understanding the components. We start to understand evolution. From evolution, we start to understand how things are inherited as units, as genes. We start to come up with the concept of genes. And then only in kind of the beginning of the last century do we understand that genes are encoded in DNA. Because the chromosome, if we remember back to this picture, is DNA wrapped around proteins, right? So even though we knew the chromosome had the heritable matter, it wasn't until the beginning of the last century that we even knew that it was the DNA and not the proteins that were wrapping the DNA out that are up there. Because if you pull this DNA out, unless you're, you know, really rough, all the proteins come with it. So it wasn't until the beginning of the last century that we figured out that, and it wasn't until actually the middle of the last century that we really cracked the genetic code. And so then when we start to see, and again, after cracking the genetic code, uh, molecular biology, PCR, the ability to sequence genes, we often talk about they found the gene for that, they found the gene for this. Uh, we hear about genes in the news. Almost always we're talking about this in the paradigm where a biologist has access to either the whole genome or the tools to sequence uh, genes when, when genes are mapped to certain loci. So in the end, it wasn't until 1986 that Lee Hood's laboratory at the California Institute of Technology automated Sanger's method, which was developed uh, about a decade earlier for, for DNA sequencing, and about a year later, which is pretty fast considering how, how long it takes to do anything in academia, uh, Applied Biosystems came about and offered the first commercialized DNA sequencer. And this is a very important milestone because it wasn't too long after that that we started to get the first uh, genome sequences. And soon after that, again, about less, less than 10 years, we actually got the first microarray, which is potentially the first genomics experiment. And so what is the microarray? The microarray is a device to try to measure how many copies of a given gene are transcribed as RNA. So the central dogma, which is now part of a much more complicated picture, is that if we have a gene that encodes for a protein or a gene that encodes for a functional RNA, it's copied off the DNA by RNA polymerases. And so if we want to know how strongly that gene is expressed or on in a given tissue or cell type or under an environmental condition, we have to measure how much RNA is there. And so this is a, this is a technique where 
uh, RNA is labeled with fluorophores and it's washed over a chip such that different RNAs, the many thousands of different RNAs in your genome, bind to spatially localized different spots. And so you can read off the intensity of the fluorescence along this uh, two-dimensional chip and you can get an estimate of the RNA concentration for thousands of RNAs at once. And so this isn't the only or the first experiment that was very highly multiplexed. But what these guys achieved is they did, when they did things, when, when many of these er, er, first microarrays were published, they were done in the sort of post-genomics era. They had the complete genomes of many of these organisms, and so they could predict what genes were protein coding. And again, unfortunately, this is before we knew that there were so many important functional RNAs, but they could predict which genes were coding, and they could actually start to measure things at the genome scale, or what they thought was the genome scale, which actually wasn't so bad. And so from there on, we see that we're both discovering new, totally new components of life pretty quickly. So microRNAs were discovered in 1998, and now we have very, um, we're beginning to have pretty well-characterized libraries of some of these things. The Institute for Systems Biology and Systems Biology and Genomics Centers started pretty quickly after this first explosion. We see some of the first whole cell mathematical models. So Bernard Paulson at UCSD actually published a model of E. coli that included both the regulation of the genes, how the genes are being turned on, up, down, off, etc., and what they did enzymatically, so how metabolites were flowing through the sort of biosynthetic pathways of the cell. And using this sort of metabolic plus regulatory model, they were able to predict out of many, many thousands of combinations of media, what E. coli could live on. And this doesn't sound all that impressive, but it was, a, in my opinion, these, these are the sort of milestones that define early genomics successes. Now we're seeing whole cell models of, of expression, and we'll get to an example uh, here, this milestone, uh, whole genome model for prokaryotes uh, regulatory system. One of the reasons why genomics is important is because it is now giving us a real wealth of data for whole genomes. And so this is actually just a histogram of the number of sequences deposited in GenBank, or a plot of the number of sequences deposited in, in GenBank, and also the number of base pairs as a function of, of time. And you can see that it was actually a decade before this exponential growth really took off, and it hasn't stopped since. And so we're seeing that, that basically our ability to sequence genomes is still doubling just about every two years or year. So we're, we're right on pace with Moore's Law, but instead of the speed of microprocessors, it's the cheapness and multiplexed and scale of biological measurements. And so you'd see a similar plot like this for transcriptome data sets, for proteomics data sets, for any of these sort of genomics data sets. And given the scale of biology, the scale of our data sets is actually quite important. So a lot of the things that we want to do in genomics, we're just barely being able to do given the scale of the data sets. Okay, so genomics is taking the parts in the genome and trying to figure out how they're integrated into a functional network. So what is a genome? The genome, for instance, the genome of a bacteria is oftentimes about four million bases. And so some of those segments of the genome are predicted to be protein coding genes, others are predicted to be uh, functional RNAs, others are predicted to be the control elements in between the genes where proteins bind and RNAs bind to turn on and off the genes. And so in the end, we can translate, in, if we're in a protein coding gene, we can translate these four bases, three at a time, into the 20 amino acids to make the protein sequence. If you really want to be strict about it, we start with this. We have computational algorithms to predict where the genes are, and then the, the, the goal is to figure out what those, say, 4,000, 10,000, 30,000 genes do with each other to form a network. And again, 
there's a scale issue here because most genomes contain many thousand genes. And so this is actually the parasite that causes malaria. This is its first genome sequence paper in Nature, and basically they're showing clusters of genes along the chromosomes, and you can see that there's lots of genes, lots of functions, and the scale of these genomes ends up being, for human, 30,000. For Arabidopsis, the plant that, 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 that powers a lot of uh, plant genomics, 25,000. But even for these sort of bacterial and archaeal genomes, 2,600 things controlled by 110 transcription factors is still a scale that's big enough to be a little bit scary. So, for instance, most of these 110 transcription factors regulate, on average, about five or ten genes. So, in the end, we end up with some calculation that there should be two or three regulators per, and so this ends up being many more than a million possible edges. In fact, astronomically more than that. So, we're going to talk a little bit about what biological networks are, and then we're going to talk a little bit about what, what they mean in terms of what we can learn and what we can't learn with biology. You know, we can think about a bunch of networks that we think about. So communication networks, social networks, there's a bunch of networks that we have in our, in our lives that, that make a lot of sense, and we think about them as networks, but we might not call them networks, right? So one network would be, uh, like, say, a social network. So you have a bunch of kids that are friends in a classroom. There's, like, a snow, it snows a bunch, but an official snow day isn't declared. So half the kids aren't in school. So... The popular kids certainly know what the homework is that night because they have the cell phone numbers of at least some fraction of the class. The less popular kids are potentially not connected in the social network, and so the information, what is the homework assignment for that day, might not flow to them. And so in the end, social networks and flow of information from, through social networks is, is something that we can kind of naturally think about. Early biologists also thought about food chain networks, uh, what eats what. In biology, we think of a handful of different types of networks. Uh, that all kind of have analogies back to networks that we're familiar with. One kind of networks are regulation and control networks, right? So transcription factors and other sorts of proteins turn on and off other genes at the DNA level. They control how many copies of RNA are made from that particular DNA gene. And so control at this DNA level, how many copies of RNA do you make, is called transcriptional regulation. There's also a level of regulation called signaling. Proteins tend to bump into each other and add phosphate groups and make changes to other proteins, and this is called signaling. So signaling networks is another sort of network that, that operates in biology. And so these are basically networks that control levels and control affinities and are basically control networks. They're also physical networks. For example, the ribosome is what copies RNA into proteins. And this is actually a complex that uh, has you know, many protein components and many RNA components. And so you could draw that as a network, a fully connected or a mostly connected network, where the edges, the nodes, would be the protein subunits, and the fact that they were connected in a network would indicate that they form a molecular machine. We could also imagine kind of mixes of physical networks and regulation networks. For example, signaling networks might involve proteins binding each other in order to enable signaling. And so all of these different biological networks have crosstalk across them, right? You need metabolites to make proteins which bind other proteins, which then end up as transcription factors, right? So if there's a way that you can have crosstalk between the different biological networks, then biology is exploited at least at some point in your genome. So the main sort of network that we're going to talk about today is the sort of network that you can learn from genomics data sets as they exist today. And that is basically the networks of protein of factors, mostly protein transcription factors in the models that we have currently, that bind along the DNA and control the rate at which the gene that's upstream or, or right adjacent on the DNA is copied to RNA. 
And these are basically protein factors. So this is actually a, a, a very common kind of transcription factor called a winged helix. And here it is binding in the, the major groove, the minor groove, and, and again the major groove to its promoter. And this is actually the protein that controls the multiple antibiotic resistance operon. And so this thing turns on the operon that produces proteins that pump antibiotics out of bacterial cells. And so this is a very clinically relevant little transcription factor. And we write if A turns on B, if its binding turns on the gene, then we write a little arrow and that's called an activator. Sometimes genes bind in the wrong spot on DNA and they actually keep the DNA from being copied to RNA and so that would be called a repressor. And we can look at the patterns of DNA. So we can look at where this thing binds in the genome. It might bind 15 different places. We can look at those 15 sequences and try to figure out what's the pattern, what's the sequence pattern that indicates that this thing binds somewhere. And so this is the motif for this little uh, protein. Now there are lots of transcription factors and so in the end these transcription factor DNA interactions are kind of overlaid, many, many of them, to form what is the full transcriptional regulatory network. And so this is actually a small part of the sea urchin uh, regulatory program. And this was learned by uh, Hamid Bellori and Eric Davidson, and this and, and a very large number of other people. And this is basically a network that controls the first few cell divisions of, of sea urchin, which is a model system for development. And so you can see that this gene is turned on, and then it goes down here and turns on this gene, which comes up here and turns back on what turned it on, and then goes on and turns on this module of genes. And so there's feedback, there's feed forward, there's all sorts of complicated architectures, and in the end the whole thing hums away and is robust and orchestrates the development from a single cell into, in this case, something that is still pretty blobby looking, but is, is a sea urchin well on its way to, to being a happy sea urchin. Okay, and so protein interactions, we won't talk a whole lot, but again, there's enough proteins and enough different ways they interact that when you look at all the protein interactions for a cell, you get a very dense, very interconnected network. And this network is, of course, very important for the functioning of the cell. Proteins can modify each other. So here's a serine. This is a, part of, this is a little part on the backbone of a, of a protein and it's had a phosphate added to it. And so whether or not proteins have phosphates added to them or not often affects whether or not they're active. And enzymes phosphorylate enzymes, which phosphorylate other enzymes, which phosphorylate their target proteins. And so things phosphorylating and, and cutting phosphates off of each other uh, actually ends up being something that forms what are signaling networks. And the interesting thing here is that these gets turned on and then it makes this protein. Now this might take 10 minutes to 30 minutes this network kind of happens as soon as the protein is made. It happens on a different time and temporal scale. And this actually can take seconds or be very fast. And so in the end, the cell has a lot of these different networks of informational flow, partly because they have different time scales. And the cell has to mitigate environmental impulses that can happen over minutes, but it still has to kind of be with you for your lifespan, which could be years. And so it has to span a lot of both locational and temporal scales. Okay, so there's a bunch of other networks, like how metabolites flow through the big array of enzymes in your body, and so this is also important. What we're going to talk about is mostly transcription, but there's a lot of crosstalk between these different levels. Okay, so given the scale and the sort of multi-level nature of these networks, you might ask yourself, well, how can you potentially go into this giant hairball of interactions and learn anything? Basically, at the core of our thought that we can learn anything from this data is the idea that if we have genes that are turned off by another gene, there'll be some sort of recognizable pattern in the data. And so what I'm showing you here are just 76 experiments, and we have a cluster of genes, and for each gene I'm showing you a colored line, 
And then on this axis, this is some relative expression scale. So this means on, this means off, and this means just about boringly average. This is what the cell does when, no, when, when it doesn't really have to make any changes. This is up and this is down, right? And the scale is, both, is the same for both of these plots here. And so what I'm showing you is a handful of genes that we know are repressed by this gene SIRR. So in the dark red is a repressor, a gene that turns these genes off. And you can see that when the gene that turns this cluster of genes, all these, these uh, sort of fiesta-ware colored uh, genes up here uh, off, when it goes down, those genes go on. So first of all, there's two things to notice here, that the genes that are all controlled by SIRR kind of go on and off together. And so we could potentially recognize that they have a similar control. We could learn the module. The other thing is that this relationship looks, at least in this plot, fairly simple. Now, in this plot, it looks fairly simple because we knew, we kind of learned this with a more advanced algorithm, then pulled it out and made the plot in a kind of safe place, right? But in the end, this is what we want to look for. The relationships between genes, which we know based on their sequences and based on experiments, et cetera, et cetera, are controllers and their targets. And so I'll go through a little bit about the steps that we do to do that. Now, again, the scale complicates things because life is not an equilibrium system. Life is not at like a static equilibrium. Uh, often cells are going through something called the cell cycle. Even cells that are quiescent are going through various cycles to maintain their metabolic activity. And so what this means is these networks constantly have flow of information going through them. They're actually constantly degrading and synthesizing proteins and RNAs and all sorts of other metabolites just to keep the lights on, just to keep the overall circuit in a state that's able to respond. So for instance, if a cell is told to die, that actually is not a passive process. It goes about killing itself, right? Apoptosis is not something that the cell can be dead in order to do. So a cell that goes through apoptosis is not a dead cell until the very end and in a very uh, meaningful way. So in the end, it means that these networks are very dynamic. And so we can think about a single gene that turns on four other genes. But the problem is it's going to be embedded in this larger network where if it turns on a gene, it's possible that that gene could turn on a gene that turns it off. And so you have echoes through the system. And so how do you learn things that are truly causal in a background of lots of interactions? The other thing that's kind of uh, hard to learn, or uh, kind of complicates this again, is that some things happen in milliseconds and seconds, and other things happen in years, which is just, it turns out mathematically that makes things a little bit hard. And then also, it'd be hard to convince somebody to take a time series measurement of, say, a population of growing cells every second for 10 years it might hurt their budget a teeny bit to do all those experiments, right? So. so there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, which is that biological systems are not random networks. They're very exquisitely structured. A lot of that structure and a lot of how, how, how biological systems have evolved is actually very useful for us when we go to learn them. So there's a bunch of chemical reasons why they're very amenable. So one reason why it's not impossible to query biological systems is because they're made out of these heteropolymers, like DNA is made out of four bases. So if I want to know what a DNA molecule is, I just synthesize, I, I copy the DNA and, and I have a method of basically learning what the sequence is. If I want to sequence proteins, I can actually digest the proteins kind of one at a time, or I know that they come from a library and so I can look at the mass of the protein after I blow it apart. But in any case, the fact that these things are heteropolymers that can come from a controlled alphabet of amino acids and bases means, means that we actually have a lot of analytical chemistry advantages, right? But let's talk about kind of the advantages that come from the actual architecture, like how these networks might be built. So without telling you why biological networks are robust, I'm just going to tell you that they are. And what that means is that 
most of the genes in your genome you can just rip out and completely inactivate and you're, you'll be fine. In fact, most of us are just filled with tons of loss of function mutations. And we're still here, we still developed, everything's fine. So for example, with yeast, you can actually wholesale remove two-thirds of its 6,000 uh, gene genome. And you can actually order a big stack of plates that is called the knockout library. So it's basically 4,000 strains of yeast, and in each little well is a yeast with a different gene pulled out of its genome. And you can use this to then go after learning what the function of these genes are. And so genetics, as we know it, would be really hard if biological systems weren't robust. And genetics is how we know kind of most of what we know about biological systems, not genomics, not yet anyways. Anyway, so we can learn a lot from these systems because they're robust. So as we learn their architecture, we'll learn some neat things about how you can make robust systems. But also, if the lab conditions vary a little bit, a worm still develops into a worm. That's super useful. And we can also pull things out one at a time. And so, for example, if I gave you a thousand of your DVD players and a pair of pliers and said, go home and tell me how this circuit board works, well, as you start to pull those components out, you're most of the time just going to bust the thing, right? And so your genetics would be 90% of these components are essential. And I'd say, good job, but you didn't learn anything about the structure. So there you go, especially if you're messing with the power source. In fact, that might be dangerous. So don't do that. Okay, so the other thing is biological systems are self-assembling. So, for example, proteins fold spontaneously. Cells replicate their genomes, and they replicate themselves through the cell cycle. They synthesize a lot of their, their building blocks based on kind of other amino acids and, and nutrients that we can actually give them fairly cheaply. So if I want to make 16 copies of the U.S. economy, and then I want to see 16 different times with slight random variations in the condition what happens when you rip out an AIG, I don't exactly get a good sense of the function, and also you can't just make 16 copies of the U.S. economy, which is kind of an equivalently complex system. But with biological systems, I can rip out different components, and I can, because they self-assemble, start with things that are grown in a very similar way, and I can be sure that a lot of the important parts of the system are starting in a similar state. I, I can have like a control over the initial conditions that you really can't have when you have non-robust, non-self-assembling systems that you can grow by the millions in the lab. Now, of course, when you deal with human beings, we do uh, self-replicate, but we're a little bit more expensive than yeast, and so obviously there's still cases where the fact that we're self-assembling doesn't matter because if you're a clinician, you can only afford 100 time points, and each of those time points costs $5,000, nevertheless, and requires IRB, et cetera, et cetera. But for a lot of different biological systems, this is really special. And if I, from my opinion, if we can learn uh, the full network for a single organism that's free living, that's a huge, a, huge, uh, a huge milestone for us. Okay, the other thing that's really special about biological systems is that they're modular. If you cluster data from biology, you get modules that actually correspond, or you can get modules if you do it right, that correspond to groups of genes that are controlled by the same transcription factor, groups of genes that are part of the same physical complex. So in biology, the modules aren't just similar preferences. So modules or modularity in data from, like, say, the purchasing of bunches and bunches of people rec represents some sort of similarity in their preferences. But it's not necessarily purely mechanistical. Whereas here in biology, if things are uh, modular, what I mean is they're actually modular in how they're controlled, how they're assembled, et cetera, et cetera. So biological modules correspond to real things physically often. And that lets us, in many cases, learn those modules. And by learning the modules, we reduce the complexity of the data. So for instance, if I want to just look at all the ways that 1,000 things can interact or 6,000 things can interact, that's 6,000 times 599 divided by 2, 
right? That's all the possible ways that those things can interact. If they only get to interact one way and it's, it's not symmetric, right? But if I reduce that to a set of 400 modules, that's now 400 times 399 divided by 2, which is a lot smaller than 6,000 squared, right? So things tend to, the complexity of things tends to go up at least as the square of the components. And so reducing them, a big genome to a couple hundred modules is actually a really, really, really big reduction in the complexity. Now, if you do this wrong, you shoot yourself in the foot and you can't get the answer right. But if you do it right, or you do it right for some fraction of the genome, then you have hope where you didn't have hope before because of the complexity. The last kind of thing that's super important is that biological networks evolve. They evolve from common ancestors. And so it means that if I learn something in mouse, some part of what I learn in mouse I can map to human. If I learn something in E. coli, in fact, there's some of that that I can actually learn and map to human. Now, it doesn't mean that everything maps from one organism to other, but it means if we understand evolution, we don't have to necessarily learn every lesson from scratch in every organism. So there's similarities an understanding of evolution, an understanding of how sequences evolve, if we have different copies of sequences in different organisms, how networks evolve, all of these sorts of things will eventually let us learn basically uh, networks that apply to lots of individuals or lots of, of organisms. The real revolution in genomics started when we had complete genomes and we started to collect these measurements for whole genomes. And so in the end, there's two kind of main experiments that we can learn. One is something that measures genome-wide the levels of everything in the genome. So what are, what are the concentrations in this particular cell type or this cell culture or this cell uh, biopsy of all the proteins or all the RNAs? Another sort of experiment we can do are what are the affinities? So given this protein, what does it bind in the, gen in, in the genome? What other proteins does it bind? Given this protein, where does it glom onto the DNA and potentially turn on genes? So in the end, we've seen microRNAs and proteomics, experiments that do genome-wide measurements of proteins in, R in RNAs, and we've also seen genome-wide experiments that look at affinities. And these are both mass spec experiments. Uh, these are experiments where they've done, uh, they found out genetic ways to see what a protein will bind. There's all sorts of, of, of different ways you can measure affinities. But for every type of molecular interaction and for every type of molecular species in the cell, we have a technology to measure it genome-wide. And so I'm going to go through just one technology, microarrays. But in the end, the real thing, the real challenge in genomics at this point in time isn't the measuring of things on a big scale. It's not really the scale of biology. It's the fact that biology uses so many different informational levels and that there's a lot of crosstalk between the DNA, RNA, protein, and various networks. And so what it means is that if I want to understand a given cancer cell where the material is expensive, the experiments are expensive, I not only have to measure all of those cells at the RNA level, but I have to get another lab that does protein measurements and another lab that does genomics and, and measures the, the, the genomes of lots of different individuals so I know what the variation is in the human population. I have to get those all together, those three labs, along with a lab that looks at phenotype and tells me what the cells are doing, along potentially with a lab that measures metabolites. And we all have to get together, and then we have to get together with a computationalist and hope that we, we, we coordinated all this data collection so that computationalists can make head or tail of any of it. And so it means that you have to actually coordinate your sample collection, you have to coordinate lots of different labs that are both industrial and academic, and you have to, you have to make data sets that in genomics we have yet to see. And so we'll go through one example of why these technologies have to be different. So one question you might have is why do you need a different technology for every type of biological molecule? Isn't there some sort of machine that'll give you the levels of all the proteins, RNAs, the genome, just everything with one shot? Well, it'd be really nice. Um, 
Actually, if we invented something called the, the well, if there was really good optics for X-ray lasers, then potentially you could kind of do holography of the cell and maybe you could get that. But that, that's potentially a long way away and um, for a bunch of different reasons. But if we want to measure uh, RNA, so again, RNA is copied from DNA. All we have to do to measure RNA, if we know what the sequence of the gene is, the RNA that we're trying to measure, all we have to do is, is synthesize a piece of DNA, and there are lots of ways to cheaply synthesize DNA, that is complementary. So every time I have a U in the RNA that I want to measure, I synthesize an A. Every time I have a, C, a G in the RNA that I measure, so here's two Gs, I synthesize two Cs. And so I basically make the base that it binds in a double helix. And so I can make these, these DNAs, and then I can use a robot to print them on the microarray, and off I go. I have a way to measure microRNAs. But it turns out that when you look at proteins, a protein sequence, a protein also, the important thing is what does that protein bind with? What does it interact with? But a protein is a complex three-dimensional shape. It's not this double helix. It folds on itself in a way that we can't always predict. And so if I'm given the protein sequence that, that an RNA is translated into, I don't actually know what it corresponds to, how to make something that'll bind it on a chip. I don't instantly have a high capture, a high affinity capture agent that I can use to analyze the concentration of that protein. So what happens is that when I'm measuring RNA, I actually make, I synthesize DNA to capture the RNA in different spatial locations. When I'm measuring proteins, what I do is I blast proteins to little bits and look at the masses of what comes out. And so one technology is called mass spectrometry. The other technology is called the microarray. And it's hard to con, con, you know, think of any sort of way in which you could do both of these measurements at the same time. But they're both essential because these are both really critical informational levels in the cell. And so I think where we're going with genomics is that these multi-level data sets that include phosphorylation, protein, and RNA levels are going are gonna to start coming about. And we're even going to start seeing these for human cell lines, for mouse, and for human uh, biopsies from human uh, some of the data set will be from cell lines for human. We'll probably have to relate that back to mouse models in order to really complete the model. But we'll start to see these multi-level data sets for human. And there'll be time series, which is super important. In fact, we just wrote a 15 PI, $20 million NIH grant. So hopefully a little stimulus comes our way and, and we're able to collect that data set. Um, so if you have models that are dynamical, and the dynamics is real, like you can trust it, it's predictive, this actually opens up a whole new area of optimizing biological networks. And so there's a lot of neat stuff that's come out of that. So for instance, DuPont now makes, there's actually a, a compound, a three carbon compound that's, that used to be made from petroleum products. Dow now makes this all from glucose. And they've engineered a version of uh, E. coli where if you put in glucose, you get 90 or something like 85% of the carbon out as three propodiol. So no industrial waste other than, well, maybe a slight, you know, New Jersey might get slightly stinkier, but it'll be less toxic, you know. So in the end, uh, there's a lot of rational bioengineering. I just actually reviewed a grant where I saw an algae with a droplet of jet fuel in it. So they had, they had engineered the algae to, to make, uh, you know, certified jet fuel instead of the fats that it normally puts in its central vacuole. Another kind of place where we're headed or just starting to kind of catch up with is a lot of these models have produced a lot of noise and a lot of really complicated models. So 429 differential equations that control 85% of the genome does not sound like a good idea to most biologists. In fact, it shouldn't sound like a good idea to anyone. And so in the end, it's really, there's a lot of work to basically 
come up with interfaces, human interfaces to these genomics results. Oftentimes the models are just about as complex as anything. So for example, if I told you what the circuit diagram is for the human animal and it was perfect and dynamic and condition dependent, it would take us a good long time to figure out how to use that in any reasonable way, right? There'd be a lot of sort of modeling and use issues. One of the things that we're kind of really excited about though is that when we have different genotypes, when we have different variations in our genome, a lot of why it's hard to understand those different genetic variations is because we don't know how those, those, those things are translated by the network into sort of functional output. And so I think predictive and personalized medicine uh, is actually something that we haven't seen yet come out of genomics, but we're starting to see come out of genomics. And as we really start to get these multi-level data sets and we really start to get these real models come out, and they're just now coming out, I think this is actually going to be something uh, that, that we're going to see. This combined with another massive increase in our sequencing throughput. So there's a company, Complete Genomics, which is now claiming that it's beat the, it's, it's cracked the $1,000 genome kind of barrier. So and this is kind of a recent announcement. So I think the genomics, the genome sequencing, the modeling, the multi-level data sets, it's all starting to come together, and I think the future is bright. Hi, this is Alana Rangi, producer and host of the Science in the City podcast series. I want to tell you something I bet you didn't know about Science in the City. We rely on your support to bring you great science content every week. From our weekly podcast to our successful event series like the Science of the Five Senses happening right now and our exhaustive science events calendar. Ladies and gentlemen, this may come as a surprise, but none of this happens for free. We know it's a tough time, so we're not asking for much. In fact, $50,000 will fund our podcast series for the year. And if that sounds like a lot, think of it this way. If every one of our 5,000 weekly listeners just gave $10, we'd be set. So whether it's $10 or $100, your donations count. And we definitely hope you think Science in the City is worth giving to. Give today online at scienceandthecity.org donate. And from all of us here at Science in the City, thank you for your support.